From the virtual newsroom in Levittown, this is The Pod Couple. I'm J.D. Mullane, columnist for the Bucks County Courier-Times. And I'm Phil John Ficaro, columnist for The Intelligencer. Our headline today is, Fiscal Conservatism Dead? For decades, the GOP promoted fiscal sanity, preaching about balanced budgets. The federal government should not spend more money than it takes in. But Republicans are largely silent as relief checks in the billions are cashed on the U.S. Treasury, part of the Trump-Biden pandemic relief plan. The problem is the United States doesn't have the money. The feds must borrow 52 cents for every buck they spend. That comes to a price for you and me. Uh, at this point, uh, $28 trillion national debt amounts to about 85000 for every man, woman, and child, or about two hundred grand per household. So how long can this go on, and why is hardly anyone talking about it? Our guest today might give us some insight. Stephen Bloom is a Republican, former state rep from beautiful Cumberland County. He is vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation, a conservative free market think tank in Harrisburg. Steve, welcome. Thank you, J.D. It's great to be with you guys. So uh, have conservatives who cash their stimulus checks lost all <laughs> when it comes to preaching about the size of the national debt? Is that uh, no, non-starter from now on in politics in America, Steve? Well, it, the whole phenomenon is it's fascinating but frightening. It, you know, you can ignore politically the idea that um, debt matters. That, that fiscal responsibility matters, but it's somewhat akin to deciding to ignore gravity. And if you decide that the laws of gravity are just not cool anymore, you're not really gonna talk about them, just try to ignore them, it's not gonna end well for you, right? When you step off the cliff or try to go on your next airplane ride or whatever it is, it's not gonna end well for you because the laws of gravity are still there, they're real, and they have an impact on human beings. Same with the laws of economics. Politicians can temporarily ignore the dangers of deficit spending and growing debts and uh, a lack of, of financial responsibility or fiscal responsibility for so long, but ultimately it catches up. And history shows that countries that do that for a, pro a prolonged period of time suffer greatly. Uh, one of the most common risks is the risk of severe inflation. And, and those are the kind of things that will come back to bite politicians, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, who choose to ignore the laws of economics in favor of the idea that worrying about debt is no longer cool. We don't have to talk about it. Actually, yes, you do. Well, given that it was President Trump who handed out the first round of stimulus checks, uh, it just seems that the Republican Party has uh, given up on fiscal sanity and are really no different from progressive Democrats. Uh, Stephen, you were in the belly of the beast there. You were in politics. You were uh, in Harrisburg. Uh, why isn't your party uh, talking about this, you think, either on a state level or, or on a national level, especially? And, and you raise a great point, And thankfully, we are. We, uh, you know, we've been now for the better part of six years under the leadership of Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania, but we've had a Republican-controlled General Assembly. And every year for the past six years, including this now the seventh year, 
Governor Wolf has asked for spending increases well above the rate of inflation plus population growth, way beyond what any other governor has ever asked for. And he's also asked for tax increases to partially pay for that additional spending. And to their credit, the Republican General Assembly, which I was part of for some of that time, and I'm no longer part of, but I still advocate with them on a daily basis, uh, the General Assembly, the Republican-controlled General Assembly, including the folks from down in, in your area, down in Bucks County, stood up and said, no, we're not going to let you take Pennsylvania onto this track of piling up debt and overspending and ultimately higher taxes, uh, like so many other uh, the federal at the federal level has happened and has happened in other states. So we have seen in Harrisburg a, at least a reasonable understanding that you can't just go down the route that everyone can just borrow all the money they need for the future and there are there are no consequences. People do recognize the consequences. We're in that fight every day. We walk we work with legislators uh, in both chambers on both sides of the aisle who actually do care about fiscal responsibility and are doing something about it. Yeah, my kids and generations yet unborn thank uh, the Republicans in Harrisburg for that because they can save them some money. Eventually that bill comes due. And Phil, I wanted to ask you, you know, we can no longer we can no more ignore uh, the uh, the laws of economics than we can uh, gravity, you know, the laws of physics. So why do you think it is, uh, is it good that, w- that we just keep spending and spending like this, Phil? I mean, the progressive side of politics in the country uh, seems unconcerned about it. I guess when you can print money, when you have a Federal Reserve, you can continue to do that. But, uh, you know, one day that bill's going to come due. What is the reasoning? I mean, is it just okay to keep, keep spending and spending and sending people checks? Uh, you know, I, 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 I think it's a lot like the way people used to talk about using credit cards, J.D. You know, people would just keep using it and using it. And I, I think there was a comedian who said, I think you need to your, your hand should have to go on. Remember, they used to run it to get you the uh, the, the Xerox copy. You're, yeah. You should feel some pain every single time you use it. There's no pain now because, as Steve said, you know, the bills can become due. But, you know, it's not even in the mail yet. You know, we've got to wait for that bill to come due. And in the meantime, you know, who's going to be paying for this? Grandchildren, great grandchildren. Um, You know, you guys had mentioned, uh, you know, fiscal conservatism. You know, it's been a central tenet of the GOP for forever. Um, Used to mean no tariffs, you know, balanced budgets. You know, uh, Trump relied on tariffs. He cut taxes without corresponding spending reductions. You know, we talk about this debt. The first three years, he signed legislation that added more than $4 trillion to the federal debt. Yeah. Uh, a majority from higher government spending. The national debt rose nearly $8 trillion under Trump. Yeah, we had the pandemic, but it was rising before the pandemic. Uh, I'll ask Steve, when the president was doing all this, what was your position? I was concerned about the, in particular, the tariffs. When, when you impose tariffs, of course, it's a tax on your own citizens. And it, it, it discourages to some degree uh, goods being produced in other countries to be being sold in your country, but your citizens pay a price for that. And the, the flip side of that is, is free and fair international trade. The problem politically with, with the whole issue of trade and tariffs is that when there is largely free, tr- free worldwide trade, 
for the most part, in a country like the United States, everybody benefits from it, but they benefit in ways they don't necessarily see or understand every day. Everything is a little cheaper, goods are a little more available, people's quality of living, standard of living gradually rises because goods are, are abundant and relatively low priced. But if you if you impose tariffs, that 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 flips that equation. Most people end up worse off, but a few people in certain industries may benefit and they'll feel those benefits a lot. They'll get to keep their job instead of being laid off. They'll get a raise that they might not have gotten if their industry was struggling. So the, the tariff game is tricky because it does reward a few people. They'll like it a lot. A lot of folks will suffer, but sometimes they don't even realize how that is impacting them because it's very it's very spread out across the entire economy. If you look at the last the last several several decades, even the last century and a half or so, our our economic growth, our prosperity, our 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 well-being in terms of economic sustenance, not only in, in the United States but around the world, has grown tremendously. People are better off as a whole. Not every single person is better off, but as a whole, Americans are better off. As a whole, citizens of, of countries all over the world are better off. That's because we have had largely free trade internationally, and the benefits of that gradually lift up all of our society, including the countries where the greatest poverty occurs. You've seen a tremendous rise of people out of poverty over these last several decades as these free market international principles have taken hold, led by the United States, and people have, have had an opportunity to have a better life because of that. So when you get into starting to play with tariffs and, and other specific taxes that that dis, disincentivize free inter, international trade, you ultimately risk stopping that long line of success that we've experienced over these last several decades of everybody around the world getting better off. Yeah, uh, Steve, the uh, young people aren't buying that, though. You know, uh, I noticed you, you avoided the, the C word, the capitalism. Uh, you know, free trade, free markets. Uh, I tend to use that too in columns because capitalism has now got a lot of baggage with uh, Americans, my kids' age, they're, they're 18, 19, and 21. Um, and I don't think they realize that what's happening uh, by sending out checks is not free market capitalism, it's socialism. It's, it's redistributed. It's ironic, right? Because now we're seeing the effects of it. If you, if you go grocery shopping, you see prices spiking. Uh, there's now a housing, what appears to be a housing bubble, uh, as we saw right before the Great Recession. Um, Biden's talking about uh, payroll taxes and higher taxes. And, you know, I saw something that said if we're ever to bring, pay off this 28 trillion or who, who the heck knows how much it is, you know, now uh, uh, with interest that, um, Social Security recipients would have to take a 20% haircut. So how, how is it that something that to me and you is so clear, don't spend more money than you can take in because it's going to wreck this, this uh, great standard of living that you just described. How come um, the right, the fiscal conservatives, whoever they are, explain this to young people in a very concise and cogent way that they, they would believe it? That's a great question, JD. And I actually had a chance to experiment with trying to answer that question uh, some years back. I, I used to teach, right before I got elected as a state representative, 
I was teaching part-time at, at Messiah College, which is a local university here in the central Pennsylvania area. And I was teaching uh, courses in economics. And I, I would ask my students questions to try to help them you know, kind of start to see and understand. And one of the questions was always, would you rather live in a country where everyone got the same, but it was a low income, let's say everyone got $10 a day, but no one had to do anything for it. You just all got $10 a day and it was completely fair in terms of everyone just got the same amount. Or would you rather live in a country where some people got $100 a day, other people got $20 a day, some were richer than others, but everyone was better off. And the every student, even, even those with, with liberal or, or socialist leanings, would ultimately, as they thought it through, think that they'd rather be in a country with some income disparity where everyone was better off than in a country with perfect equality where everyone was worse off. And that's not just a theoretical choice. That's the real choice we get to make. Over, over the, the history of the United States, we've chosen the idea that we're okay with, with some disparity in income, some people making more than others, because we felt we were all going to be better off. And in fact, we have been. But there have been countries that have experimented with the opposite, whether it's Soviet Russia, whether it's Venezuela, you know, whatever country you can, you can think of over, over the course of history that's chosen the route of attempting to make everything equal for everyone, regardless of merit and contribution to the economy, those countries have suffered, the people have suffered, they've lost their military might, they've lost in many cases their national integrity, they've disappeared from the face of the map, and their citizens have suffered terribly because of that. So the, 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 the model is there, we, we know what works and what doesn't work, yet there's this tremendous resistance, and I, I feel like the only thing we can do is patiently teach, patiently explain consequences, give folks an opportunity to think about it. I, I never berated my students. I never came in screaming socialism's bad on day one of the class. I, I taught them principles of re founded in, in reality, grounded in reality of what has happened historically and what the, the science of economics has to teach us about how to make people better off, rise people permanently out of poverty into prosperity on a worldwide scale. And people do get excited about that. Even, even you know, young people who you might think would not they get excited about the idea that they can help everyone and themselves get better off yeah you know maybe you could explain it clearly to them as to you know socialism is really the reason why their college tuition is so high when the federal government will supply and give any amount of money pretty much for any kind of degree that may not have any value in the marketplace it just keeps going up and up that endless supply of of, of money uh, that you loan them so they can get their non-essential worker degree. Phil, I wanted to right, ask you. No, go ahead. I'm sorry, Steve, I interrupted. Again, it's the government picking winners and losers rather than letting the marketplace do that. And when that, yeah. when that happens, there are going to be inefficiencies that arise. Right. One if of those is that we've driven up the cost of higher education through yeah. all the subsidies you talked about. Right, because if you were a bank, you know, say we had Phil and JD's bank and some kid came to us and said, well, you know, I, I, I want a I degree in psychology, gender studies and international relations. Give me, you know, $150,000. I think we'd say no, because the chances of that kid being able to pay it back, 
I don't know what the job prospects are for that triple major, as impressive as a triple college major may or may not be. Um, you know, 150 grand is a lot of money for that. Now, if you said you were going to be an accountant or maybe a lawyer, Steve, or something like that, uh, we, we'd give you the dough. Definitely, if you're going to be an electrician, uh, if you need that, <laughs> there's no shortage of work for, for, for guys in the trades. But Phil, I wanted to ask you, you know, um, Margaret Thatcher famously said the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. And uh, I was wondering if you believe that as a man of the left, do you believe that socialism uh, has reaches an end point that uh, or should we just allow the redistribution of, of, of uh, what's called generational theft, stealing from our kids, grandkids and great grandkids to continue so that we're comfortable in the present? We just can't continue to do that. I mean, you know, Steve yeah. pointed it out. The bills come and do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I hate, I hate to repeat myself, but we don't feel the pain today. And right. that's the that's the issue. But I wanted to ask Steve, you know, the fiscal conservatism has, you know, it, as it pertains to the Republicans, I mean, it's been party orthodoxy for forever. When when did that begin to change? And when when President Trump was was spending uh, as he did, where where was the Republican Party to sort of try to rein him in, or was he just too popular to get in the way? Well, you're you're talking about, um, and and I wanted to before I get into that, I just wanted to point out something that's interesting because Phil, you said you agree that you, you can't just keep doing this and can't keep spending like this. No, and it's interesting because this is not a partisan issue. Like people who who are Democrats, Republicans, Independents, anyone who's really thinking about what's happening, they feel the uneasiness. They can see, again, based on their own life experiences, that this isn't going to work for the long haul. If we keep just borrowing money and living off this, this debt, it's not going to end well. And everybody can sense that. So that's, that's I think, one of the aspects of this. It doesn't have to be a partisan fight. There are, and, and there are uh, opportunities for Democrats and Republicans to get together to confront these fiscal issues. It doesn't have to just be the GOP, the Republicans that do so. But I think what, what we saw over these last five years, in particular with, with the, the Trump policies on spending and tariffs and so forth was the rise of populism. And populism is a powerful force in American history. It, it rises up from time to time. It's hard to predict when it will happen, but it when it does, it's powerful. It creates coalitions that sweep uh, presidents into power, sweep uh, political parties into power. And as anyone who is trying to uh, counter some of the policies that are, are raised by a populist majority, uh, they're going to have a hard time getting traction. Doesn't mean they have to stop. But we have, we, for example, at the Commonwealth Foundation over the past two years, we've been promoting, uh, pushing, advocating for what's called the Taxpayer Protection Act. It's an act that would, it's actually a constitutional amendment that if enacted by both the House and Senate for two consecutive legislative sessions, would go to the people of Pennsylvania as a up or down referendum on the ballot. And it would restrict Pennsylvania's state spending to the amount of the rate of inflation plus population growth for the state in any given year. So instead of seeing a, a state government that gets more expensive every year at a rate that can exceed our economic growth, 
Instead, that, that growth would be measured down to at least no greater than the amount of our economic growth plus, plus uh, population growth. We've had, we've had folks uh, introducing that bill, fighting for that bill on the House floor, uh, going through committee. It's, right now, it's, it's been introduced in both the House and Senate. It's gone through the, uh, the first committees in both, both chambers. It's now uh, poised for consideration in the House. And we're working very hard to, to get that done. It takes people who, even though we're in, in the, some phase of a populist wave that says we can keep spending endlessly, someone has to be the adult in the room and keep pushing for policy that will, will bring us back down to a point of reality in our spending decisions and not allow the idea that we can, we can uh, continuing, continue to rely on debt to take hold. Steve, you, you've been those, one of those decision makers. You've sat in that chair. Um, why do you think, why do you think the people who can make these changes just haven't, or what aren't they seeing? Because as we've all said here today, the bills come and do. There are, there are forces, and that's a great question. There are forces that work specifically against bills like the Taxpayer Protection Act. And primarily, they're the, the driving force in the opposition of for the driving force in the opposition to the Taxpayer Protection Act in Pennsylvania is public sector unions. Unions like the PSEA, the, the, the State Teachers Union, by uh, unions of other government workers in Pennsylvania who immediately ask their representatives and senators to vote against the bill or not support the bill. We also see a lot of resistance from folks who are, are or entities that are part of the government. So you have entities like the County Commissioners Association, like um, some of the, the township and uh, borough officials, uh, the League of Cities, those sorts of groups, um, opposing the idea that there be any limitation put on state spending for fear that somehow their piece of the pie might not get as big as fast as they hope it does. And that's, that's the opposition, that's the struggle. And it's not rank and file, uh, hardworking, hard hat unions, it's not, it's not um, just your average Democrat voter on the street. It's these organized groups that specifically rely for their growth on the growth of government that orchestrate the opposition. And so we need to galvanize not only Republicans, but Democrats as well, folks who actually care about these issues. And we're very close. I mean, we, we do what we call a whip count where we talk to members and we, we carefully and conservatively estimate where they stand on the bill based on their own words and commitments to us as, as uh, advocates. And we believe the votes are there in both chambers to get this thing done. And then we can get it done again next session and get it out to the people. And we'll have a, we'll have a uh, vote, a ballot initiative vote on the constitutional amendment, just like we're having in, on May 18th for the, uh, the amendments to rein in the governor's emergency powers. Yeah, Steve. Well, I hope that you can apply the uh, principles of the Taxpayer Protection Act to the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission because it is the most expensive highway in the world, apparently. And certainly they aren't keying things to inflation or to population or to whatever the average working guy who needs to take the turnpike from Bucks County to uh, King of Prussia can afford. So, well, listen, Stephen, I, I appreciate you you being our guest today and discussing a little bit about this. I 
wonder if the next podcast we do on this subject will be how to protect yourself from that 20% haircut the feds are going to give you in your IRA or 401k or social security so they can you know, keep the party rolling. So thank you for being here today. That's all the time we have. Join us every week here on The Pod Couple. Get us wherever fine podcasts are posted. Read our columns and our great local reporting online. I'm JD. I'm Phil. For all of us here in the virtual newsroom in Levittown, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, but especially thanks for reading. <laughs>